You know, they say the best way to teach is repetition. Repetition, repetition. So what I normally do, and you'll find that what, listening to me over a period of time, is I will always repeat some things we did in a previous lesson to introduce the next lesson. And we were talking about the first word on our list of terms, Bible terms to understand, which was the word dispensation. And dispensation simply has to do with how God is working with men down through time and how that's changed. It's the word economia, and we get our word economy from the, word dis, uh, from the Greek word economia, translated dispensation in your Bible. And so God has worked differently. God never changes. He'll never change in what makes him God, his attributes. But he has changed in the way he's dealt with men down through the course of time. And you're dispensational if you're not building an ark in your basement. Hopefully you're not building it in the basement. You can't get it up the stairs. You'd have to build it outside the backyard. But the reality is we're dispensational. Everybody's dispensational. It's a matter of where they place different things in the Bible. So we're just looking at that first term dispensation. And we know there's a huge difference in a dispensation of law and a dispensation of grace. Vast difference because the two can never have anything to do with each other. I, I like to say a... A thimble full of Sinai is just as deadly as dump trucks full of Sinai. Anytime any part of the law was broken, you were guilty of the whole thing, according to James. So God never gave the law to Israel to make them good or to show them how to be good. He gave them the law to prove to them they could never be good enough to measure up to who he is. That's the purpose of the law. So there was a law dispensation. Only one nation was ever placed under that law, and that was the nation Israel. And God made a national proposal. This isn't a proposal to an individual. This is a proposal to a nation. So when you're thinking of the law in Israel, think of a national program, not just an individual thing. Individuals, uh, the nation was comprised of individuals. But this was a national program. God was dealing with a nation rather than just a single person. Now therefore if, and notice the pronouns plural, because it's ye, it's a people of Israel. If ye will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, which is uh, testament, same word as testament, which is the same thing as the law. Keep my law, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. That would be above the Gentiles of the earth. For all the earth is mine, and ye, as a nation, shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which I shall speak. And now he gets specific. Who is he speaking to here? Unto the children of Israel. Nothing about the Gentiles. Now, do you see anything about heaven or hell in that verse? This is about being a peculiar nation above the Gentiles. So they would be above all the nations, and when you see the word nations with an S, it's the same word goe as Gentiles. When you see the word nation with no S, it's normally talking about the nation Israel, singular nation. So they would be a peculiar treasure unto God, a holy nation, kingdom of priests, and they would be above the Gentiles. And according to the prophets, the Gentiles would be coming to God through Israel's lives and through Israel's testimony and teaching. They would learn about God from Israel. Now, if the prophets were true, and we know they were, that will happen one day. That will happen in the future. Not happening now because God's not dealing with any nation above any other nation today. So if you're looking at the people of Israel, the Jewish people, and saying, wow, they're God's special people, so we've got to really take care of them, they're not his special people today. Today, everybody's on the same level, exactly, because they never did what they had to do to become that peculiar treasure unto God. But if they would confess that they didn't keep the law, 
make their confession, not of each sin that they committed to get that sin forgiven. It was never that. The confession was, we didn't keep that law and we told you we could. So there was a time when God was dealing with this nation, a law economy, a law dispensation, and it was a national law economy, and it started with the call of Abram, really, and then the giving of the law, but God had that program in mind with the calling of Abram. He had given up on the Gentiles. Three times, Paul says, he gave them over to the reprobate thinking. The word reprobate is adokimos. It means uh, unapproved. It's the same word with a negative A in front of it that we see uh, um, study, study the word. <laughs> when, when Paul said study to show yourself approve, a man, you know, needing not to be ashamed, uh, approved unto God, and that dokimos means approved, and the negative in front of it, adokimos, means unapproved. So they could be approved uh, when they failed the law that God had put them under, they were to confess that they didn't keep the law. That was their confession. We didn't keep it. Our fathers before us didn't keep it. No one in Israel has ever kept that law like we swore to you we could. And they did. And Deuteronomy, uh, we read, And what nation is there so great, singular nation, that hath statutes and judgments so righteous as all this law which I set before you this day? Um, Moses told them. God knew they couldn't keep it. That's why he gave it to them, to show to them they couldn't keep it. If you promised that you could keep the law faithfully, successfully, without breaking one point, and you promised God that you could do that, it seems like taking sacrifices to the temple week after week after week and year after year through the high priest would prove to you, we must not be keeping it. We're having to take all these animal sacrifices all the time. But they didn't learn that. They thought, according to the Bible, they supposed they had righteousness in themselves. Now, that's exactly what's being taught today in the world of psychology. Uh, psychology being humanistic psychology, for the most part today, it's being taught that you have that goodness down inside you. That's the problem. You need to get it out. You need to realize who you are. If you could ever understand who you are, and that, that God's spark that lies within you, which is pantheism, then you, you would act better because you'd realize who you are. Well, that is true if you're in Christ. <laughs> Realizing who you are in Christ uh, does, a, does a lot of good. But in secular psychology, they're talking about who you are because every human being has that goodness down inside them. We don't really need salvation. We need enlightenment to who we are, to that God spark that's within us. It's been called different things in different cultures down through time. Yin Yang. Have you ever heard of the Yin Yang? That's just Eastern pantheism brought over to us. Um, so they had to confess a singular iniquity. They had to confess the iniquity of their fathers, the failure of their fathers, with their father's singular trespass. And that singular trespass was, we swore to you we could keep this law. And the Bible says they lied. They, they swore falsely when they entered that statement. But if they would make their confession, then God would remember the covenant that he made with Jacob and, and uh, his covenant with Isaac and his covenant with Abraham. And I remember, I remember the land. So you say, why did he start with Jacob and work up to Abraham? Wasn't it Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? But you notice they put it backwards here in this verse. Uh, remember my covenant with Jacob and Isaac and Abraham. God gave to each of those the land. You'll see in the Bible that the land that was promised to them was promised to each. 
And it was, there were other things that weren't promised to all three. It was just a general promise through Abram. But the land was specifically given to each. And the last one to receive that promise, of course, was Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, from where we get the nation Israel. So what God required in order to make them above the Gentiles was a confession of failure. If the nation, if the national leadership, and that was the priesthood for Israel, it was the priesthood was their political and religious leadership. So if the priesthood representing the people would confess, and the individuals were to make this confession also, that they'd not kept that contract, God would put them above the Gentiles. But he hasn't. Because the, is, the Jews that are in the land today, God's not started counting, calling them back in 1948, as we often hear. Uh, they're atheistic or agnostic at best, atheistic uh, most of the time, and they think that uh, they think that Christ is, was a big fraud and a big counterfeit, and he was never God in the flesh and never never accomplished anything really. Uh, he was a prophet. So notice Daniel makes a confession. We won't go through all the confessions, but notice Daniel makes his confession. I prayed unto the Lord my God and made my confession and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments, we, plural, have sinned. The nation, we've sinned and have committed iniquity and have done wickedly and have rebelled by doing what? Departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments. In other words, we failed that law contract. We swore we could keep it and we failed it. So now, under what economy did Jesus Christ conduct his earthly ministry? was the law, wasn't it? John said that is the forerunner, and I knew him, speaking of Jesus Christ, not, meaning I didn't know him any other way, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore, or that's why, I've come baptizing with water. What could be more clear? The only way he knew Christ was that he'd be made known to Israel, so he came baptizing with water. Now think about this. John did baptize in the wilderness and preach the baptism of what? For the remission of sins. Whose sins? Israel's sins. So it, that baptism in your Bible is called the baptism of repentance. Let's look at that word. In Matthew, we read from that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at your doorstep, Israel. You could be above the Gentiles if you'd make your law failure confession. And they could do that by repenting. And that word repent is metanoia in the Greek. Very important word because religianity, as I call it, has changed the definition. They've hijacked a good biblical term and they've changed the definition. So when people think of repentance today, what do they normally think of? Turn from your sins. <laughs> now we have a sin disease. We have a sin nature. It's a sin disease. We all have it. Nobody is without it. That's why nobody can ever measure up to God's righteousness unless God credits Christ's score to your test paper, which he does when you're a believer. But no one is righteous, not even a single person when it comes to measuring up to God's righteousness. So metanoia, we're told, means turn from your sins. Be sorry and turn from your sins. How sorry would you have to be? How long would you have to be sorry? and turn from your sins. We have a sin disease and as with any disease, the sin disease manifests itself in symptoms. What would be the symptoms of a sin nature disease? The sins you commit. They're simply the symptoms that you have a sin nature. 
So when you sin, it's proof that you have a sin nature. And how many have sinned? For all have sinned, Paul said, Romans 3.23, and all are continually coming short of who God is and his righteousness. It's not a one-time deal. You're never measuring up. If you had to get on your knees and ask for forgiveness for not measuring up to who God is, you'd never be able to get up off your knees, you'd never be able to open your eyes, and you'd have holes in your jeans for sure. They'd be more valuable, but you'd have <laughs> holes in your jeans. Metanoia is two words put together. Meta, we get our English word metamorphosis from that, which simply means a change. Meta, change, tied to noia, the mind, think differently. Now, if Israel thought they could get righteousness through their performance, what did they need to do? Well, they were pretty prideful if they thought they could give, keep that law, weren't they? Give us this law and it'll be our righteousness if we observe to do all the things you gave us. You can count us righteous by the degree we keep the laws, what they told God. They thought they could. The Bible says they supposed they had righteousness in themselves. They thought they were capable of keeping that law. So they said, give it to us. You know, people like law. We all like law. Why do we tend to like law? Is it because we want to see... Um, we want to see where that line is so we stay this side of the law line. Or do we want to know the line is so we can go all the way up to that line and try not to go any further? <laughs> if, the, if the speed limit sign says 70, are you more apt to go 65 or 75? Well, they have an allowance, don't they? <laughs> so we tend to think God has an allowance, and, but not with the law. So God wanted Israel to think differently, but they were prideful. They thought they could do what they swore to God they were capable of doing. So what did they need to do with where their attitude was concerned? They needed to humble themselves, didn't they? Does that bring a verse to your mind? It shall be our righteousness, they said. You can count us righteous, God, if we observe to do how many? All these commandments before the Lord our God as he hath commanded us. This is why they need to have a change of thinking, a repentance. If you go to your refrigerator... You're going to get a glass of milk. You've got your mind made up. Oh, I sure would like a glass of milk. But you get there and you see the Coke or the Pepsi or whatever else you like. You could repent right there on the spot. Say, I changed my thinking. I think I'm going to have the Pepsi or the Coke instead of the milk or vice versa. But the idea is that's what repentance means. It simply means a change of thinking. And so religion in their attempt to think that God justifies the godly by faith uh, is about making sin managers out of us. We, if we all become sin managers and manage the sin in our lives, we'll become more godly and God justifies the godly. But guess who God justifies in Scripture? The ungodly by faith, not the godly by faith. So this is exactly what John in 1 John uh, 1, 8, and 9, and I know you've probably read that passage at some point in time, if I or if you or if we... And who's John writing to? The 12 tribes of Israel. If we say that we have no sin, did they? They were very prideful. The Pharisees didn't think they did. We deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. So what did John want the nation to do? Confess their sinfulness. Confess their sins. Not, I lied on Monday and I cheated on, on my test on Wednesday and Saturday night. We won't even talk about that. But John wasn't saying, add these things together and get God to forgive them by getting on your knees on, on the weekend or nightly or whatever. Um, John was saying to the nation, confess your sins. Now, with Israel, even when the new economy was underway with grace, 
if you were a Jew and you were told that that time would come when you and your people would be placed as a peculiar treasure unto God, would you not want to confess your sins? No matter change of economy or not. This is what John's baptism was, a baptism of repentance. So to go to John's baptism was proof that you had changed your thinking about your ability to keep, your, uh, to keep the law for your righteousness. So in that sense, everyone in the world needs to repent today and not say, well, I promise you, I feel sorry that I have symptoms for this sin nature disease. So I'll do my best not to show any symptoms and then you'll forgive me for my sins. That's really what they're saying. If you'll confess your sins, be sorry for your sins, repent, turn away from your sins, he'll forgive you. That's re what religion teaches. But it's not being sorry for your sins and confessing each sin to get them forgiven. It wasn't that. It was confessing we didn't keep the law contract. So today, people need to change their thinking from any idea that their performance has anything to do with their righteous standing in heaven uh, with God. It doesn't. Our performance has nothing to do with that at all. We will be judged by our work of faith, patience of hope, and labor of love at the judgment seat of Christ for reward or the loss of reward. But according to the Bible, even if you have the loss of reward and have nothing attributed to your account, you'll still be in heaven. <laughs> he shall be saved. And by the skin of their teeth, in a manner of speaking, uh, because they won't have anything, any rewards to show. Now, that doesn't mean that if you're rewarded, because we often think in human terms, we'll get the bigger house, the nicer street, and a better neighborhood. You know, God's going to give us the bass boat on the lake and stock it with fish, and, you know, for the men. <laughs> I guess, what would he give the ladies? Shopping. Shopping. <laughs> Stores. <laughs> But the reality is, it's not, it, the, the rewards won't be for us. The rewards, the, the degree that we, the degree to which we honor God in our lives today by loving those around us um, will be the degree to which we will be able to reflect to Him uh, our, the glory that we established here by our praise of Him and our service for others here. Does that make sense? Paul said there's one glory of the sun. The word glory is synonymous in scripture with brightness. There's one brightness of the sun. There's a different glory of the stars. Well, the stars aren't as bright as the sun, are they? And there's a different glory altogether or brightness of the moon. Such is the resurrection of the dead, Paul said. So in a sense, you could think of your life here on earth as you're creating or you're your building your own glory factory and your the way the amount that you glorify him here will be the rewards given and your everlasting testimony of the glory that will be reflected back to him there does that make sense to everyone and when we're there our our attitudes and actions won't be as adam and eve turned away from god and on to ourselves what do we get what's behind door number three you know what do we get it will be to him. If we learned that we brought nothing worthy of reward, we didn't do anything that we can think of worthy of reward when we give account of ourselves to him. But then he shows us what he did through us that we didn't take the credit for because we didn't realize we were doing it. And then he wants to reward us for that. Where will we want to put those rewards? Just like Israel, we'll want to put them back at the feet of the one that accomplished our salvation. So, 
the humbling was to a nation that said they could keep the law. Well, there's a lot of religious religiousity today that thinks they can do what Israel couldn't. Well, now we can do it. Now we can keep the law. Now we can do what Israel was unable to do. But he proved the whole world in sin uh, when he gave that law to Israel. Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the Israelites, of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made uh, unto the fathers. And so Christ came not teaching something new, not reaching out to the Gentiles. Uh, Christ came only for Israel, which is why Jesus said, uh, you know, when the Syrophoenician lady said, would you cast the, the, the demon out of my daughter? This is why Jesus said it's not appropriate, not fitting for me to, to give the bread that belongs to the children, the children of Israel, to the dogs. Because that's where Gen, the Gentiles were at that time. He wasn't being mean or facetious. He'd given them over because they didn't want him. So Jesus Christ came. You can see right there Jesus Christ prior to his crucifixion. And uh, when the fullness of time was come, God sent his, forth his son made of a woman, made, notice it, under the law. So now Christ has come. How many years did he teach Israel? Three years, right? Just prior to the cross, he gave a parable. A parable isn't a falsehood or a mythical story. A parable is one truth held up beside another truth to illustrate it in a different way. Here's that parable of the fig tree just prior to Calvary in Luke chapter 13. He spake also this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came and sought fruit thereon. What fruit did Israel promise God they could produce? The fruit of righteousness. And he sought fruit thereon and found none. Paul would agree with that wholeheartedly. Then said he unto the dresser of his vineyard, which would have been the, the chief spokesman for the twelve, Peter, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit in the fig tree, and I don't find any. Cut it down. Why cumbereth it the ground? And the dresser of the vineyard, Peter, answering, said unto him, Lord, let it alone, how long? This year also, till I shall dig about it and dung it. In other words, till I shall cultivate a proper response, a humbled response from these people. And if it bear fruit then, well, that'll be well. And if not, then after that year, thou shalt cut it down. So now, that parable of the fig tree gave Israel one year after the cross of Christ to make their confession. A solid year. Now, where did Pentecost take place? Well, 50 days, 50 days from Calvary was Pentecost. We could put it about here maybe. So if you say something new happened at Pentecost, it's the church today began at Pentecost. A dispensational change came at Pentecost. You're only giving them 50 days and how long did God give them? You're giving them less time than God gave them. He gave them a whole year. And so, let's see what happened then. 50 days later, which is Pentecost, Peter's trying to cultivate that humbled response from the nation. Notice, and there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews or Gentiles, or, or both, Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. It was a Jewish high feast day, and they'd come, all the Jews had come to Jerusalem for this Jewish high feast day. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak how? In his own language. This was what the tongues were for at that time. So that every man, what the apostles were gifted supernaturally with was the ability to speak in languages, they never, not languages, true languages they never had to learn. 
So it wasn't speaking in a language only unknown in the sense that unless they had an interpreter that could, that could interpret that language, the other people there wouldn't have a clue what they were teaching. But they were reaching every Jew in his language with the languages they were supernaturally gifted to speak. So they were all gathered and everyone was hearing them speak. No Jew, no matter the language they spoke and where they were from, would be without this truth of needing to be humbled because of who Jesus was. Notice how Peter is, is cultivating a response strictly from the Jews. Here it is, Acts chapter 2. Ye men of Israel, he doesn't mention the Gentiles here, Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved to God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. He's trying to get Israel to understand. Then Peter said unto them, change your thinking. You Jews, repent, change your thinking and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for what? This was a national forgiveness still sitting in the Bible for Israel. There's a national forgiveness. Keep that difference in mind. National and individual is a different thing. So the nation needs to be forgiven as a nation to be put up above the Gentiles. And so Peter's saying, if you'll change your thinking and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, it'll be for the remission of sins. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So Peter's trying to get them to make their baptism, their law failure confession, by John's baptism with water. Now, it was in the law. They had to be baptized for the remission of their sins. They had to be identified with remission of their sins. And if they weren't identified with the remission of their sins, they weren't numbered along with the people of Israel. They would be cut off from the people of Israel, from the nation. And so if you were baptized as a Gentile, who would you be identified with if you were a proselyte, Gentile proselyte to Judaism? Who would you be identified with if you went to Israel's baptism? That's what the circumcision was for the Gentiles that wanted to be, that had to be circumcised if they were living in the household of a Jew. Because you would then be a proselyte to Judaism and it was what they had to do. It was part of their law. If it's what they had to do, then why was Jesus baptized when he had no sins to be baptized for? Because it was a legal issue for Israel. It was a legal issue. Yeah, so he couldn't tell them to do it, and he would, he would be a lawbreaker himself if he didn't do it. So he did it. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves being not baptized of him. They refused to make their law failure confession, as simple as that. So they had one year. There's Pentecost sitting there right after the cross, but they've got a year so if you had an old Schofield with Unger's dating in the middle of the pages, you could page forward uh, from Matthew uh, all the way through Mark, Luke, and John, all the way through the book of Acts. You could keep paging forward. If Christ made that statement after three-year ministry, let's say AD 33, then what would be the time given when that came. If they had a year from A.D. 33, what would be the next date? A.D. 34. Page through your Bible and you won't see A.D. 34 till something happened at the end of that time period. Now I call it their extension of time to make their national confession of failure. Something changes right there because right there in your Bible you're going to see A.D. 34 for the very first time. And what was it? Stephen 
in, delivered the final indictment on the nation when he spoke quite lengthy and said, you men of Israel, you men of Judea, uh, just like Peter, you always resist the Holy Spirit just as your fathers did. Jesus Christ came. They taught you. The, the prophets have taught you. Christ taught you. But you didn't listen. That's the, in a nutshell what Peter's indicting them for. He's telling them how they failed. Did they want to hear that? They gnashed on him with their teeth. Well, whether they were screaming obscenities at him or actually biting him, who knows? But they didn't like what Peter was saying. So what did they do? They stoned him. But somebody was standing there encouraging that stoning and agreed with it. Yeah, you're doing the right thing. Stone this guy. Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus. He was holding the clothing, the cloaks it said, of the executioners that were throwing the stones. I guess he couldn't throw a stone if they were in their Sunday suits. So um, he held their clothing and they stoned Stephen to death. And Stephen, just before he died, saw Christ standing. And what does the Bible tell us what Christ is doing at the right hand of the Father? Sitting. But if you go back in the Old Testament and look at Christ standing, when Christ is standing, judgment's right at the door. It's time for judgment. Christ was standing, and they stoned Stephen to death, and Stephen saw Christ standing at the right hand. It's time for Israel to be judged. Well, what did the parable say? After that year, do what? cut it down. But instead of cutting it down, Christ, God in the flesh, um, injected a huge hypothermic needle full of grace and mercy. He didn't judge the nation right at that time. He didn't say, that's it, you know. Instead, he ushered in a new economy, an economy of grace. And so, now we have a grace economy and who did he deliver or commit that economy to in order to make everybody see the new way God's dealing with mankind? Saul, now called Paul. And we're going to look at the Gospels later on in our terms, but don't think there's only one Gospel in Scripture. There's several and they're all given different names because they have different messages of good news attached to them as God progressively revealed things to mankind. He didn't reveal everything to everybody at one time. <laughs> he progressively added, but all he ever uh, demanded that man do is take him at his word on the knowledge that he was providing. So whatever information he gave you, that's all you had to do to believe to show you took him at his word called faith in Scripture. And God's always justified people simply by whether they would take him at his word or, or not. And so Saul believed what was being taught during this period of time was called the gospel of God in your scripture. The gospel of God was not being taught here. The gospel of the kingdom was being taught there. What's the gospel of the kingdom? The proximity of their kingdom. It's at your doorstep. Change your thinking, Israel, and be baptized for the remission of those sins. So that's called the gospel of the kingdom. But the gospel of God is who Christ is. Jesus is the promised Messiah. That was never taught during Christ's earthly ministry. Did you know that? People think, well, Jesus came telling everybody who he was. And if they believed he was the Christ, uh -uh. he said, tell no man that I'm the Christ not till after the Son of Man be risen from the dead. So the gospel of the kingdom was being taught here. It was never being taught after here. With the stoning of Steve, you'll never see the gospel of kingdom being mentioned in your Bible again. Now it's the gospel of God. 
here, all they had to do was to believe the kingdom was at their doorstep and they'd have a Messiah. They didn't recognize that Jesus would be that Messiah and he didn't want anybody to tell it. Unless they recognized what he was doing, he didn't want them to know. They have to recognize what he was doing. He was doing everything the prophet said would be done when that kingdom was presented. So they should have recognized he was the king, but they didn't like the looks of him. Number one, he wasn't a good looking guy. He didn't come with a lot of wealth. He had nothing, no change in his pocket, and was riding a, uh, the foal of an ass. He was riding a donkey. He wasn't in the convertible with the top down. So they, didn't, they, didn't, they, wanted, a, they wanted a warrior king. king. They wanted a, a king that was a battle winner. They wanted someone to come in there and wipe out those, that Roman oppression that they'd been suffering. And so he didn't come looking like the Messiah they thought he should look like. Even today in our presidential elections, don't they want somebody that looks presidential? And that means he has to be kind of tall. Stand Trump, stand Clinton, stand those guys up against some of the leaders from the other foreign nations, and you'll see this on TV. Somebody tall, somebody fairly good looking, which they say, well, that's presidential, has to speak in a nice manner. Um, you know, speak presidentially. So they didn't like what Christ looked like, how he acted. He wasn't defeating anybody. He wasn't defeating their enemies. He was saying, love them and forgive them. That's not what they wanted to hear. So they crucified the king. And believing the kingdom is at hand is quite different from accepting the one that is the king. Because after Christ died, was buried and rose again, now they could teach what your Bible calls the gospel of God. The gospel of God was, who is the king for this kingdom? And the gospel of God isn't your kingdom set your doorstep, Israel. The gospel of God is Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the king. And so, not only is he the king, but he's risen from the dead. That's the gospel of God. Anything about the cross yet? No, he just rose from the dead. Jesus is the Christ, he's risen from the dead, and God has made him the judge over the living and the dead. That's the gospel of God. They could shout that from the rooftops after Christ rose from the dead. Now they know who he is. Anything about the cross and the gospel of God? Not till Paul comes along and tells them what the cross accomplished. If you didn't believe Jesus was the Christ here, you had no reason at all to believe what he did for you at Calvary. So the gospel of God, guess what Saul was converted under? On the Damascus Road, the gospel of Christ and the cross? No. When, when Christ spoke to him from heaven, he said, who are you, Lord? <laughs> he said, I'm the one you're persecuting. Now, what did, who, was, who had Saul been persecuting? Christ, Jesus Christ, because he, he, Saul thought he was an imposter. So now, if he said, I'm the one you're persecuting, then Saul at that instant knew that Jesus is the Christ. Not only that, but had he risen from the dead? Well, Saul heard him talking, didn't he? <laughs> Saul believed the gospel of God, and that was the gospel by which Paul was converted. But then Paul would receive revelations from the ascended Christ on what the cross accomplished, and Paul would call that my gospel. Uh, my gospel. The gospel of Christ, a different gospel, different message of good news. And Paul taught the gospel of Christ, which is what this one that was the Messiah that rose from the dead accomplished at Calvary for the sins of the human race. Paul was given that to make all men see. 
For if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will even, a dispensation, an economy of the gospel is committed unto me. For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, if ye have heard of the economy or a dispensation of the grace of God, it's a little bit of ecclesiastical sarcasm when you say, well, if you have heard about it, what could we assume they hadn't heard about or didn't want to know about? If you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me to you, word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the secret he'd been keeping, the mystery, as I wrote a foreign few words. For I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am not one of the apostles or an apostle. I am the apostle of the Gentiles. I magnify myself. Never. He said to the, to the least of all saints was that grace given. He magnified the office that God gave him. What do you do when you magnify something? Don't you bring it up real close so you expect every detail of it? Know the intricacies of it? Well, that's what Paul was doing. He was saying, I'm magnifying. Paul was looking at every aspect of this news that God had given him, that Christ from heaven. Whereof I made a minister according to the economy or dispensation of God, which is given to me for you, to do what? That word's complete in the Greek. To complete the word of God. So did Paul complete the word of God? Yes, he did. Whereunto I am ordained a preacher and an apostle, I speak the truth in Christ and lie not, he knew they'd be accusing him, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. And to make, keyword, all, all men see what is the fellowship or the koinonia, the oneness of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God who created all things by Jesus Christ. And I went up by revelation, the Holy Spirit sent him to that Jerusalem council. I went up by revelation and communicated unto them that gospel. The word, the pronoun that's a word of distinction. Not just the gospel. That particular gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. He didn't just openly broadcast it then. He told the ones that, were, uh, that he knew had been filled with the Holy Spirit. He told the twelve what he had learned, knowing that they would accept what he had to say. Now to him that has power to stabilize or establish you according to another word of distinction, my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revealing of the secret God had been keeping which was kept secret since the world began. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of, that's Paul's gospel. Uh, for it, the gospel of Christ, is the power of God and salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel of Christ is what Christ accomplished at Calvary where our sins are concerned. So if I say, if you want to be saved today, just love the Lord, just love God, just love Jesus because he died at Calvary and he rose again from the dead. But I don't tell you anything about the cross. What, what gospel am I teaching you? I'm, I'm teaching you a, a false gospel. <laughs> it's not just about loving people and loving Jesus because everybody claims that, but do they believe what he accomplished at Calvary where their sins are concerned? That's the issue. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. If Christ took the sins of the world upon himself, not just the sins of believers, then how many people did Christ redeem from the curse of the law? But it's commonly taught that only the redeemed are saved today. Do you see a fallacy there? So did Christ redeem the world? From the marketplace of sin, he most certainly did because he took all that sin on himself. Does that mean everybody's going to be in heaven because everybody's redeemed? Not at all. <laughs> it's one thing to have a redeemer. It's something else to believe in the redeemer that you have. 
And Christ redeemed the world when he became sin for the entire world. Being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. For sin shall not have dominion over you, because now you're able to not sin any longer. <laughs> for you're not under the law, you're under... What a magnificent word that is. All things are lawful unto me. <laughs> but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any of those things. Again, he says it three times. This is the second. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things don't edify. So if I live my life doing everything I shouldn't be doing when it comes to loving other people, then am I going to be in hell paying for sins? Or am I going to be held, hell, the only way you can go to hell is just reject what Christ accomplished for you at Calvary uh, where your sins are concerned. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. This is an important verse to understand. Let me show you why. A pronoun, in the English language, a pronoun has to refer to one of the antecedent or one of the preceding nouns. You have two nouns in this verse, grace and faith. You see them in green? And in the English language, that would have to refer to one of those two. And in the English language, it has to refer to the nearest one. What's the nearest noun to that pronoun that? Faith. Do you see where some people give that faith is a gift? And if God wants to save you, he's going to give you faith? He's going to give you saving faith if he wants you to be saved. But those people he doesn't want to be saved, he's not going to give saving faith. So God determines who he's going to save. He may want to save you, but he may not want to save one of your kids. So he's going to cause you to believe. It's called Calvinism. But he might not cause your kids to believe. Just you. Because he's chosen you. That's Calvinism. And Calvinism made such an influence, had such an influence on the world of religionity that we still speak in those terms today. Do you realize that? If God is the one that determines who he wants to save, and it's not by our faith, but by the gift he gives us of faith. We didn't have any faith. He had to give you a special gift of faith that he's not going to give to everybody. And if that's true, if Calvinism is true, then you don't have anything to do with believing or not. God's caused you to believe, but he didn't cause others to believe. So it's God's. So who's at fault for somebody not being saved? The person for not believing and for God for not giving them with faith, gifting with faith. You see it? So they always shift the responsibility off on someone else. And so, but in the Greek, Greek beyond the basic, this is called a pronoun that identifies a, uh, a what do they call it, a uh, phantom noun. The noun doesn't appear as a noun, but it's the subject of the sentence. And what's the subject of the sentence? Saved. It's not a noun, but it's the subject of this sentence, and that's the phantom noun. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that salvation is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not talking about grace or faith. It's talking about salvation. And the reason we know that is because in the Greek, the pronoun has to be the same gender of the noun that it's representing. So that would have to be in the masculine or feminine gender, uh, whatever gender these were in, and it's not in either, it's in the gender of this. That's Greek beyond the basics. But if I'm just reading the Bible and I'm not really studying in that sense, I'm likely to think that God gave me a gift of faith, but he didn't give it to you. 
And think of the Calvinistic terms that we adopt today based on that belief, false belief. Well, when it's your time to die, you're going to die. Does God bring death or does sin bring death? So we say, well, God, does he know when you're going to die? Does he cause your death or does sin cause death? But we give that cause of death to God. Well, it's in your time, it's your time. Because God's numbered the hairs on your head. He knows how many hairs will ever be on your head. But he hasn't said that I'm just going to give some people a little more hair than other people. When we know, in truth, God polishes his best furniture. <laughs> and the Bible says there'll be no parting in heaven. <laughs> so the gift he's given us, proven by other, validated by other verses, is the gift of salvation. I want to bring this one to a close here. What we've been taught in the, de the denomination called right division is that when Paul came along, the program changed. It was no longer a national program. That's true. That was done away. And now it's an individual grace program. But where, where did we go from there? We were taught that this program kept going along as usual. And God was dealing with this group one way and with this group a different way. And so under that false notion, we could call it a false paradigm, We've adopted the idea that now there's two different Gospels. God dealing with these people under one Gospel, these people under a different Gospel. Two different churches, God dealing with them as a kingdom church. God dealing with us as a what church? Body of Christ church, right? So these people can't be in the body of Christ because they don't, they're not promised heaven. The body of Christ was never a description of heaven or where we're going to serve. That's not the purpose of the word body of Christ. The body of Christ is a spiritual reality that God had been keeping secret. And he'd been keeping it secret for his household of faith. And his household of faith is combined of all those that had faith taking Matt's word back here and all those here. How many was Paul to make known the secret? And Paul, the Holy Spirit said, Paul, go up to the Jerusalem Council and tell them about this. So instead of two different things and everything, neither one of the things ever having to do with each other, God started dealing with how many men under a new set of rules? So those people were under Paul's ministry at that point in time to learn what Paul had to teach all men because what Paul taught was as valid for those Jews as it is for us Gentiles. Which is why Peter would come along later at the end of Paul's ministry and say, even as our beloved brother Paul hath taught you in all his epistles. <laughs> so all of Paul's writings were as good for those Jews that were alive at the time past that could hear it uh, as it was for the Gentiles. So kind of think outside the box here for a minute of what we've been taught and think about the body of Christ being what God, the secret God was keeping about what he was going to do with his household of faith. And his household of faith is everybody that's taken him in his word from way back here, starting with Adam. God's secret was he was going to join his household of faith to the person of his son. And that's the only way any man will ever be righteous before God, is to be joined to his son. And God's secret was, I'm going to join my whole household of faith to my son. When did he do that? So don't mistake the beginning of a new dispensation with the term body of Christ. The body of Christ didn't begin with the Apostle Paul. God had had that in mind all the time. But what did Christ do so that God could say, I join you to my son? What did he do for that? 
He rose for our righteousification. He rose again. So when Christ rose again from the dead, God could say, I now join my house of faith to the person of my son. Did he tell the people he joined to his son that truth yet? Not till he commissioned Paul to go make all men see it. So don't think it happened with Paul and everybody from Paul forwards in one church and everybody from Paul backwards in a different church. That's kind of the paradigm I came up with in what I call the denomination called right division. I'm a firm believer in right division. I just think it's gone to wrong division in many cases. <laughs> so anyway, that's where we are. We'll end it with that. And uh, Paul's given to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery. And this is why Paul could write to everybody, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Now, you can't take a verse, Bible scholars know this, you can't take a verse and read one part of the verse one way and have a totally different interpretation of the other part of the verse. The whole verse is legitimate. So if I say there's one God and Father of all, and that's how God's dealing, then God's dealing with these other, in these other things the same way. We can't interpret it, well, there's one body for them, one body for us. Uh, and if there's one body, that's the body of Christ, and that's for everybody. One spirit, one hope of your calling. I thought there was two different hopes. One hope of your calling, which Peter talks about. One Lord, one faith, one system of belief, one baptism, which would that be? The immersion into a person of Christ, not our immersion into water. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you. What next word? Ephesians 4, 3, and 5. Let's end it there. I've gone beyond. But I started five minutes late, so I'm only five minutes late. <laughs> and let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your love for us. We thank you for what you've accomplished for us. And we thank you so much for not leaving us in the dark concerning these things, but giving us your word and, and the, the wisdom to know that we'll not understand it with just a cursory reading of it, but you've told us to study it. I uh, thank you so much for that. And once again, for the people who've come out to study your word with me and uh, so thankful for them and uh, just praying for the families and for, for uh, the fact that we would hope many would come to, to trust in Christ as their Savior through what he accomplished where their sins are concerned at Calvary um, through these hard times and through times that are coming as your word says it'd be perilous times would come. We, we know they have and we know that uh, we can be bold and we can be brave and uh, we can have strength and, and clarity of mind knowing that you're in charge of all things. Nothing has changed there. and Nothing happens that you don't allow and that you don't permit. And we hope that we could all grow through it and learn to trust more and to, uh, to help others that might, might have a lot of fear and stress over these things. That, uh, you're still in charge. We thank you for all things. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.